0: The Waves of Tech is the down-to-earth tech podcast for you, your family, and your friends. We remove all the complicated, drawn-out explanations of technology and simply talk about how technology is influencing every element of our lives. From social media and the cloud to tweeting and mobile communication, we talk tech in a different way. So plug in your devices and listen as we get ready to ride the Waves of Tech. On episode 432 of The Waves of Tech, Bill Gates' predictions coming true, FCC's day in court, and AT&T bit off a bit too much. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Welcome to episode 432 of The Waves of Tech. Steve, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm good. It's
1: uh, Monday again, day after the Super Bowl. You and I hung out yesterday, had a good time with the the wives and food, and, uh, you know, we kind of poked at the game once in a while. But other than that, um, we just enjoyed the day.
0: Yeah, we just, uh, like I said, enjoyed some ribs, some nachos, a few drinks, uh, some Super Bowl bingo to keep us invested in the game, which was kind of fun. But see, we're back here, as always, every Monday, released on a Tuesday, if you're... Listening to this the day of release. Uh, We want to thank everybody for recently subscribing and also sending a few shout outs via social media on Twitter. That was great to see. Thanks, thanks everybody for doing that. Well, Steve, let's dive into it. We got a number of topics to cover today. First, I want to start out with Bill Gates, and he made some predictions back in 1999 when he wrote a book, Business at the Speed of Thought. And part of his book was he made 15 predictions that at the time, back in 1999, seemed quite outrageous. There was a gentleman, one of his business students, that actually went back, looked at the book, compared to what's happening now in 2019 with technology, and found out that Bill Gates' forecast turned out to be eerily accurate. And Steve, I wanted to quickly run through a few of these to kind of get your opinion But I mean, 20 years ago, when a lot of these people, when when technology was really being, being born and things were starting to be established and presidents were starting to be set, you know, a lot of these things did come true. The first one was price comparison sites. Gates' prediction was, quote, automated price comparison sites will be developed, allowing people to see prices across multiple websites, making it effortless to find the cheapest product for all industries. Of course, now we have sites like Kayak, Expedia, Google Amazon, even Google Shopping and Microsoft's Bing Shopping are all platforms that are used for price comparison sites in 2019.
1: And the one comes to my mind is uh, Travel, Travago. You know, it's it's interesting. If I had to come up with these predictions today of what it's going to be like in 20 years, I probably wouldn't get a single one, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The landscape of technology is so changed from, you know, will completely change in 20 years. I mean, we can throw out some ideas like cryptocurrency will, will be the currency of choice or, uh, you know, artificial intelligence can replace 90% of jobs and we can throw it out there. But 1999, the thought is as like going with number two here, mobile devices, Gates prediction, quote, people will carry around small devices that allow them to constantly stay in touch and do electronic business from wherever they are. They'll be able to check the news, see flights they have booked, get information from financial marketplaces and just do about anything else on their devices. And Steve, it's moved way past just smartphones and mobile devices. It's smart watches, it's smart speakers like the Amazon Echo, we have headsets such as, you know, the HoloLens from Microsoft that just constantly give information at our fingertips and, you know, a, a very Bold prediction in 99, and it came true what eight years later when the iPhone came out, but still a pretty bold prediction to make in t- uh, 1999.
1: Now, let's also remember in 1999, the quote internet was um, relatively young at that time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Number three, he said, instant payments and finance financing online, and you're actually going to have better healthcare through the web. He said, "quote People will pay their bills, take care of their finances, and communicate with their doctors over the internet." We do have simple things like that: Venmo, PayPal, Lending Club, and of course, there's a few startups out there uh, where you're starting to now communicate via Skype and One Medical and Forward are also technologies out there trying to connect patients with their doctors over, you know. Uh, membership sites and big HMOs like Kaiser Permanente, they offer video chat medical consultations via smartphone. And that's definitely not unusual in today's world. But at the same time, back in 1999, it was a bit far-fetched. He also came up with what he's calling personal companions were developed. We know them as personal assistants and the Internet of Things right now he said they will connect and sync all our devices in a smart way, whether you're at home and in the office and allow them to exchange information. Of course, we know that as Amazon's Alexa products, Google Assistant, we have Nest with their flagship thermostat. You have a lot of Internet of Things that is just completely, Steve, interconnected our entire homes and made everything uh, smart connected.
1: That's some of the stuff that I really enjoy today. And it leads into the next one, Dave, with uh, online home monitoring which kind of ties into the previous one. Yesterday, you saw my new uh, Echo B that I have installed, Mm -hmm. but I also have the Amazon cameras inside and outside that are monitoring my home now.
0: Yeah, online home monitoring. He said constant video feeds of your home will become common, which they really have. And and it says, which inform you when someone visits while you're not home. We know they're increasingly common. We have companies, as we know, Canary, Amazon picked up Ring this last year, Netgear, Google cousin, The Nest, as you mentioned. Amazon has a lot of newer, different things. Pretty incredible. Steve, I'm going to breeze through this next one. Social media. He said private websites for your friends and families will be common, allowing you to chat and plan events. You know, private websites, I don't think really particularly happened. um, But when you look at WhatsApp, Snapchat, Slack, plenty of other apps like Facebook, Instagram, definitely keeps you in contact. And you can tailor those to have either small groups or large groups, especially Slack. I think that's probably not necessarily a private website, but it's definitely more of a private platform. Form, that you can have more intimate conversations with either group or just uh, individual with family. One thing that he did come out and say was uh, automated promotional offers. Quote software that knows when you've booked a trip and uses that information to suggest activities at the local destination. It suggests discounts, offers, cheaper prices for all things that you want to take part in. We know Expedia, Kayak, they all offer those deals. They try and package everything from food to cars to hotels to destinations to any sort of, sort of travel package that we used to go through as a travel agency. And we even know that Airbnb lets people stay in their homes rather than hotels, and they actually provide specialized trips at destinations. And most of the hosts of Airbnb now provide you with a lot of local destinations. So I thought, Steve, the uh, automated promotional offers was probably one of his more innovative ideas or predictions.
1: I agree. And uh, I guess we have to also throw in their stinking uh, Facebook pixel, which picks up everything you've done and then redisplays it in your face wherever you go. But I think if you look at this entire list, it really summarizes our lifestyles now in this technology world.
0: It does. It's and it's not like this uh, graduate student from up in the northwest cherry picked the. I mean, these are these are things that he explicitly outlined in his 1990 book and uh, 1999 book. And it's pretty incredible to see this is we're essentially hitting on everything that we do in modern technology. And Steve, I'll just name the other ones so we don't have to go through the whole thing. But smart advertising devices devices will have smart advertising. They will know your purchasing trends. They'll display advertisements that are tailored toward your preferences. Steve, that is exactly the advertising and business model for so many of the the social media applications right now is smart advertising. He also said links to sites during live TV, which we know happens, online discussion board, he predicted, internet-based online sites. Uh, more like online communities that are not necessarily influenced by your location, but rather your interests. We know that Reddit is a really good example of that, where it divides into subgroups, subreddits, and you can follow interests based on that. And a couple more project management software, where project managers look to team up uh, look to putting a team together, we'll be able to go online, describe the project. We have Slack, we have Trello, we have Asana. Um, meanwhile, there's like Fiverr, Gigger, a Gigster that has everything associated with having project accomplished at, you know, sort of the gig economy scale. And of course, online recruiting and business community software was his 14th and 15th respectively. And I see pretty incredible as you look back and we know how much Bill Gates has done for the technology community and the industry pushing it forward and everything he did to get PCs on, on every desktop and, and desk in, in people's homes... But it's just incredible to look back. What sounded outrageous 20 years ago is actually exactly what's happening 20 years from then.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable. And I just think that shows kind of where these visionaries of our technology world came from. And they did have the foresight to really kind of see down the road. You know, we can think of others in this industry that have done uh, similar things. And um, that's why they are what they are today in the history books of technology.
0: Well, Steve, let's move to the history of what technology and the open internet order could be here in the future and let's talk about the FCC Mozilla and a number of other organizations and and parties went to the United States appellate court recently and they are suing the FCC and challenging them over for them overturning of the open internet order and real briefly if you most of our listeners should be familiar with net neutrality but if you're tuning in for uh, a time which we haven't talked about it, net neutrality, what is considered is the general term around the open, open internet order, was passed in 2015. And very simply, it's what made it illegal for internet providers to block or throttle internet speeds when accessing particular sites or platforms. For example, as a way, it is the law that protected consumers from having to pay more for, quote, fast lane services. The open internet order protected companies from having to pay extra cash to internet providers, for good speeds to be available on their websites. One thing, Steve, I always like to bring up is that, for example, AT&T, if net neutrality was repealed and uh, the open internet order was repealed, which it was in 2017, still in in pending litigation, obviously. But AT&T could technically block its consumers for accessing Netflix, for example, because it wants to promote its own rival streaming service like DirecTV. And I think that's where a lot of the net neutrality, Steve, comes in, in, into contention with a lot of people. I know a lot of people will pay extra for fast lanes and get a little bit more for a little bit more speed. That's, that's inherent. A lot of businesses, a lot of individuals are doing that. But the big problem is when AT&T can block or throttle our access to a rival company or service, when we want to use that in preference over something, say, AT&T owns, T-Mobile, Fox Sports, whatever it may be, whoever the corporation is, if they're blocking me from accessing something that I want and putting up a paywall to access that, that's where the open internet order protects individuals like you and I. That's where it protects companies from having to pay more to get their product out in front of the eyes of their consumers. And so, Steve, the case is being heard right now before the U.S. Courts of Appeals in District of Columbia really centers around whether the FCC actually had the right to overturn the open internet order. Because, Steve, before um, when, when the open internet order was passed in 2015, it was upheld by the United States Supreme Court. And a lot of critics are saying that the only thing that has changed in the law is the only reason there has been a change in law is because there's different people who now run the FCC. We know that once Ajit Pai was appointed by the current uh, administration in Washington, that that is the moment when they said, we're going to retract and appeal the open internet order and the, the trade organizations... And the consumer advocate groups that are suing the FCC and taking this to court are saying they weren't justified in changing that law. It says, quote, nothing has changed since the 2015 ruling, but the leadership of the FCC and said the FCC lacks compelling evidence justified in 2018. And um, one general counsel for the Center of Democracy and Technology, which is part of the lawsuit, says they expect the D.C. court will find that the FCC's action were arbitrary and capricious. And Steve, I know you sat through a few hours, I'd say, of the mm, the proceedings, the hearings, I guess, if you want to call it, between um, the FCC and Mozilla and some other ones. What did you think about what was being shown? It obviously, to me, sounded like the FCC was on the ropes for a little bit and couldn't really explain themselves out a lot of the questionings that the judges were throwing at them.
1: It's very interesting. Uh, this five and a half our question and answer, I guess I would call it, was interesting in, in that, uh, depending on what side you're, uh, you were on, the attack, the response with regards to specific information was sometimes either misconstrued, not handled appropriately, or honestly, some questions from the judges really could not be answered appropriately by the government. And the biggest one really had to do with is an internet provider actually a type of of service or is it a communications uh, aspect? What really is it? And the government really stumbled on that because in the 2017 decision by the FCC, they did some recategorizations to then allow them to skirt around certain things. And so... Uh, based on that, uh, some of the judges were not too pleased, and nor did they agree. I do also want to say, Dave, that I appreciate some of the organizations like Mozilla uh, that are fighting this. Well, they're kind of the the middle guy. Um, I'm not sure they really had a, a a dog in the fight except for doing what's right and wrong. But this whole thing is just ridiculous. The 2015 decision should have never been reversed. I think based on this, the court is going to do one of two things. They're going to say, you've totally blown it. You need to uh, reverse your your course of action and go back to 2015. Or you just don't have enough information here to allow us to um, make the appropriate decisions. And or we're going to have to have legislative influence in how this is to be directed.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because aside of the nuances of what this means for you and I as a consumer, what it means for schools and nonprofits and the educational institution and startups in the technology sector, it all sort of hinges on, Steve, the legal battle here is the question of whether the FCC, under the new chairman, Ajit Pai, actually overstepped its authority in its move last year to simply reclassify ISPs and in blocking one other thing, are they overstepping an authority by blocking states from substituting their own net neutrality rules and whether it followed any sort of administrative procedure law in carrying out the order? In my opinion, Steve, we followed net neutrality in the open internet order for the last three years. And for them just to arbitrarily reclassify ISPs from what I believe was, um, I forget the terminology, I think it's a Title I information service. And essentially what what that classified it as more of like a public utility. It's something that the public needs. It's something that requires some authority from the FCC to implement for oversight. And I think one of the other big things, Steve, that came out of this is that when the Open Internet Order was repealed, it really took a lot of consumer protections away in the process. It process it it returned us to a very um, archaic approach to the powers that we have as consumers. How much? How frequently can we send complaints in? What is that complaint protocol? What are the processes that the FCC have to go through to show um, if a complaint has been followed through? with their investigators, with any ISP that's across the the United States here. And so the good thing is, Steve, is that the Supreme Court said, you can classify this as a Title I information service. Now FCC has to go back and show why the U.S. Supreme Court was wrong in their decision, which is going to be very difficult. But to your point, Steve, with Mozilla taking on the challenge is because they believe the FCC needs to follow the rules just like everybody else. They came out and said that their chief operating officer and said, today we fought for an open and free internet that puts consumers first, right? And the FCC came back with a statement later said that it renounced its responsibility to protect users, uh, consumers on a whim. And I think that's really what's happening, Steve, is that as consumers, we continue to be shown that we're, we're not their first choice or their second choice. We're like a third tier concern for a lot of these ISPs. All they really care about is maximizing their profits. And if that comes at the expense of us having to pay more to get our content, They don't care. And I think there's a much bigger picture associated with net neutrality. It's about how much control do ISPs have over you and I in our data and how we get it. And Steve, we know that there has been some massive public safety concerns. We talked about it yesterday when we were hanging out that in Santa Clara County, it's their first responders in Verizon had throttled data during a California wildfire and did not allow access to firefighters and emergency response. That is a very significant public safety argument to be made that ISP should not have the ability to throttle and, and block such content. Throttling could become a crisis, you know, and you don't want these like remedies just out of nowhere to come out of it. But we'll, we'll definitely have three or four links in the show notes to kind of get a little bit more detail. The Verge had a really good article and digitaltrends.com had a really good background and feature about what went on. But Steve, it's really cool to see a really diverse group of technology companies like Mozilla, Open Technology Institute, as I mentioned, the Center for uh, Democracy and Technology, to be fighting this as a collective. And that's what I love to see. They know what we as consumers want, and they're taking on the FCC head on. And in my opinion, uh, we've been very clear on this, is that it's all about consumers first. It's about an open internet first. It's about providing those startups and those educational institutions as much access and, uh, and, and Equal access to the internet across many, many, um, many streams. So I'm hoping things get restored back to 2015 because it was a much more pleasant time in technology with open internet.
1: I think it will get reversed. And uh, if nothing else, uh, certainly one thing that did not fly uh, very well with the panel of judges was the FCC's argument that certainly this is of an importance in the growing of the industry from these businesses. If you take the context of what they were really saying, you bet your sweet bippy that's true because they're going to be able to really expand on what you've given them in where the protections of us, the little guy, are not going to happen. And I don't think the court really appreciated that.
0: That is a negative. I know the FCC, in all their information and studies and arguments by their councils, they did make a lot of points associated with this open internet internet order has stalled infrastructure, it has stalled investment, and you know a lot of companies actually do want this, and I think that falls on a lot of deaf ears. I think at some point, obviously, Steve, you and I want more development, more infrastructure, more investment in ISPs, and with five G coming, we we want that to happen, but. I'd say most of us want open, free and equal access to the Internet beyond having better infrastructure in place, because we don't want to have to pay extra to get Netflix on my AT&T phone or to pay extra to get HBO Now if you have a T-Mobile account or, you know, like Mozilla, for example, they know that they have a number of people that utilize their web browser as a main portal to get through different social media accounts to different messaging apps, to different video contents, both gaming and streaming services. So I think it's really interesting to see how much argument the FCC is making as far as this making it an economical exercise, an argument, when I don't think the courts and the judges there are really looking at it as an economic issue. They're looking at it as as an ease of access and equality, just as a public utility. Everybody has access to food or to, to water and electricity and power just as they're going to have access to an open internet. So yeah, more more things to come. I don't think there's any timeline that I've read, Steve, of when the courts are supposed to have their rulings and the judges are going to have their, uh, either their approval or dissension. But we'll definitely be keeping tabs on this because I think it affects every consumer day in and day out.
1: It's definitely something we're going to watch because uh, like you said, we've been covering this for a long time and we're going to stay on the trail until they get it right. So, Dave, last week I I sent you an email and I go, Yeah, we kind of called this one, and you wrote back in uh, a little steamed (laughs) mode, I guess I would put it. Yeah. Um, Agitated. And what it deals with is, you know, for the last couple of years too, Dave, we've been talking about these mega mergers, the things that are going on within these various industries to whatever it might be to get the upper hand, to be the almighty of content, whatever the case may be. And one of those cases being AT&T and all that they have bought up, gobbled up, and then go, oh crap, how are we going to fund this? And as we know, Dave, you're footing the bill. And um, whether it's through price increases or w- whatever the case may be, these mergers and what they're wanting to do have to be paid for somehow. I guess they never thought of that. And thus, they're kind of sticking it to us.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate because we did talk about AT&T a lot. And every time there's a mega merger. And when we talk mega, we're talking like $50 billion or more, right? Because we know AT&T picked up DirecTV back in 2015 for $67 billion. And then last year, 2018, they picked up Time Warner for 86 billion dollars. So you can think over a three-year period, Steve, uh, maybe four-year period, they got saddled with about 150 billion dollars, and that's not money they paid outright for. That's not money they did stock swaps for. That was that was debt. That is 150 billion dollars of debt that they took on essentially to combine the weight of three mega distributors of content. And now they're finding out that $150 million coupled with fourth quarter earnings that are showing that the company is losing hand over fist several hundreds of thousands of DirecTV satellite subscribers. This was just in one single quarter. They're finding out that this was not a really good deal. And unfortunately, Steve, what is happening is we're seeing incremental additions of fees, fees and different services tacked onto our cell phone bills, onto our cable subscription packages. If you're a DirecTV Now uh, consumer at this point, you're gonna see a price hike in that, and it's all due to dropping satellite subscriber numbers and the rising cost of their debt because they're trying to finance it. I wanted to mention, Steve, that the company lost 403,000 DirecTV satellite subscribers in the fourth quarter last year alone. Yes, while AT&T serves 19.2 million consumers, more than 1.4 million direct consumers have fled just in the last two years. So you're looking at, I'm not very good at math, what 5% of your customer base has all of a sudden left. And that is poor timing after you spent $150 billion. And then you look at DirecTV now, it's obviously a, a less expensive price point, but they lost 267 thousand direct TV now subscribers last quarter alone. So you're looking at almost three quarter of a million satellite and direct TV now subscribers. That's 14% over uh of a one year period. And Steve, it is not looking good for them. They continue to price hike. They're promising another five dollar price hike in Direct TV now and they're trying to use more hikes and fewer promotional things. So you know, a lot of times, Steve, when you sign up, you get, oh, you're going to get DirecTV for $30 for 12 months. Now they're going to be getting rid of a lot of that stuff because it saddled itself with $150 billion of debt in just three years. And sadly, Steve, their poor decisions and our, our insight into what was going on here has proven to be very difficult for them. And it's, proving, it's going to be proving a little bit more heavier on a lot of the consumer pocketbooks here.
1: So much of this has to do with approach. And what you're doing to the current customer base and what you're doing to the potential new customer base. And I guess DirecTV is a good example of that. You know, I was on DirecTV for a number of years. Uh, I never had a real issue with DirecTV as a standalone company. And I know you have been with DirecTV also. And once AT&T took over, I was pretty unhappy from a lot of different perspectives. I think one of the biggest ones was the continual bump in, um, in costing. But I think from a, a different point is that they kept cramming this stuff in my face and I didn't like it. You know, to be able to do this, this, and this, you got to now have this bundle. And here's what we can do for you with this, this, and this. And I didn't appreciate it. I didn't like it. Um, No matter what viewpoint I was looking at it from, I'm going to make those decisions for myself. And now you're affecting my costing of other things because you want me to bundle certain aspects and I'm not going to do it. I buy services, specific services for my need, and I don't need you to really mess that up for me. And oh, by the way, even after you bundle, eventually it's going to be astronomically expensive anyway, because you you just keep blowing up the numbers. And, you know, when they do these kinds of things, I think they really get egg on their face. And uh, frankly, people are just really getting sick of these big companies trying to cram down what they say you need into your face.
0: Yeah. And I think it's frustrating, Steve. They've not done their consumer base any luck. And I think I think consumers are educating themselves a little bit more and looking a little deeper into these, because as you said, you know they continue to incrementally creep up the price of their services without explanation, without justification to their to their user base, and then to saddle some of that debt and eliminate some of that debt. That's courtesy of some looming layoffs that AT and T, Directv, and Time Warner have planned, and so you're now incrementally increasing your prices. Now you're having less time with courtesy reps and representation. On the phone so you're having longer wait times. And then you find out that AT&T has so much debt, even after receiving tens of billions in tax cuts and regulatory favors from the administration in Washington right now as well. And then you look at the consumers connecting this to our last topic of net neutrality, that they are particularly annoyed as AT&T continues to have an assault on net neutrality, which is also likely driving up consumer cost as as we well know, as I mentioned up front with AT&T, they have been known to throttle, especially I think when, what was it, Facebook Messenger or something came onto the AT&T platform? No, it was Skype. When Skype came onto the AT&T platform, they blocked it. And they said, if you're on our phone, you can't use it. You got to use uh, our app. But we know that AT&T has made headway in recent years, killing a lot of the consumer protections and really eroding FCC's oversight and really getting on the, the anti-net neutrality bandwagon and I think Steve, what happened is they got in really deep with this. Okay, the open internet order is going to be no longer. Let's just go ahead and buy up all this content. And then we're going to put up these massive paywalls, and then we're going to send everybody towards Directv now. Everybody towards a uh, towards HBO, and it just hasn't worked out. A lot of this anti-competitive revenue that they've thought they would have generated is in fact not penalizing Netflix users and you know different users like that have subscription models. It's now impacting AT&T directly. And I think that's a very interesting strategy that didn't pay off for them. Unfortunately, it will come to uh, balance out in the end because we're going to see higher price hikes for every customer because for every customer that leaves, that has to be made up somehow, whether in layoffs, whether in debt restructuring or another price hike to those that are staying on board so it's just a big hot mess Steve you mentioned it right in your email it says we 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 called this we saw this coming and it's we're we're footing the bill time after time for these mega mergers and it's it's not pretty
1: here's one of the things that really frustrates me Dave and that is before these are approved they have to go under a government eye to see whether they're going to allow the merger or not look at monopolies and things like that and one thing that you read over and over and over and over and over in these things is these companies saying there will never be a post-merger price hike, and it's like keep lying to me, keep lying to me. And why the government doesn't something after the fact, I I, I really don't know. But in simplistic forms, and maybe these big guys up in the, on the 60th floor in some of these buildings don't understand that for a lot of people, a five-dollar increase. Means the difference between using and not having you at all. That's a big, big price jump, five bucks, to be honest with you. And, you know, I guess they're looking at it as just nickels and dimes, but it's not. It's a real forceful impact to people's decisions.
0: It is, Stephen. To go back to your point where you talked about you know the us government approving these things and they say you know there's not going to be a price hike we we promise more innovation more development more access for people more original content and better customer service no price hikes i just wish for once somebody would call them out on these hearings and be like you're full of crap give us it straight we know what's going to happen because every time a mega merger happens stuff like this goes down and consumers pay the price we get less we have higher we have higher prices we get less quality customer service, and we have very limited resource and uh, to be able to do anything with this. There's there's very little as consumers we can do when that thing starts happening. And I wish somebody in Congress, whether it, whether it proves to be of any action in the future, but at least someone that calls out and says, give it to us straight. What is actually going to happen here? I know they would backtrack and they'll say, no, we promised what it is, but I want somebody on a grander stage than just us here on this podcast to really stand up and really call them out on these things because that's what gets the attention of consumers. And that when consumers start hearing that, that's when the companies start to act is when they know too many eyeballs are on them and they need to do something. And it's super frustrating. But Steve, we always talk about how these mega mergers are a disaster. You know, and every time we say this is gonna get approved whether we like it or not, and every time we say that, it comes true. There's very few steps we can take. And when you have companies like this and governments that approve these things, it erodes our ability to control, doesn't allow us to do any any retraction or any sort of uh, complaints. And it just sort of gets in this vacuum, Steve, where net neutrality comes into play, price hikes come into play, access comes into play. And it's just a, it's a disheartening situation to be in. But that's how it's run. And that's how it's been organized for so many years.
1: Well, Dave, if you are a Google Plus user you know that uh, Google Plus is ending its life. I'm not going to get into the reasons because I think they're pretty petty on Google's part as to why they're shutting it down. However, they've come out with information on what you need to do before Google Plus shuts down on April uh, 2nd. And if you didn't receive the email and you do have an account, there's also a support article that we will put in the show notes regarding the shutdown of Google Plus. And the reason I bring this up because if you do have a Google Plus page or account or whatever the case may be, that they are providing you some methods right now to be able to download any of your content that you want to save, whether it's photos or whatever the case may be. So you need to heed to that. Other than that, um, you know, pretty much it'll just go away, fade and die, and that's the way it is. I think there's a lot of unfortunate aspects to this shutdown. Regardless of what Google says, it is, for some, a very viable uh, platform. Uh, I was there today, and some of the communities that I'm in, a few of them are 30,000 people, and they're very active, and they're very informative. People are really, truly upset that Google Plus is going away because these communities were, were very popular. It's where a lot of people communicate and they're, they're really disgruntled because they're going, what do we do now? And quote, we don't want to take it to Facebook because it's a whole different model. It's a whole different way of dealing with things and, you know, the, the stigma. And I mean, there's many aspects to it. It doesn't matter. It's going away. So they're either gonna to have to shut down their communities or figure out how to go somewhere else with them. But I really wanted to bring this up because if you do have data out there, Google's giving you the opportunity to and, and utilities to be able to download that content.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a statement, Steve, I think that we all anticipated. They had hinted at it back in what December of last year and you know they finally announced the decision April 9th or April 2nd to to shut it down due to quote Low usage and challenges involved in maintaining a successful product that meet consumers' expectations. And Steve, I think it's just a platform they don't want to embrace anymore. I don't I think they want to get away from, you know, sort of the social elements of that. But you're right, there are plenty of very active Google Plus groups. I have never really been involved with it, but there is a lot of value there. And I think there's some great concern with everything we've been hearing from Facebook. Let's not tangle, you know, weeds here, Steve, but Google takes as much personal information as Facebook does. So, you know, on, on a just a principal level, it doesn't matter really who you go with. But the fact that there is a growing, robust, intimate community that you've created around Google Plus, you want to leave it there. You don't want to leave anybody out in the lurch or in the dark, you want to maintain some continuity. And that's what Google Plus, I think, really did for a lot of people that were very active in their communities and on their pages. And I, I do think even though Google Plus Google+ is ultimately a failure and it's closing down, is it created a, a very unique social interaction, Steve, we you're able to create your circles. You have just very subject and very specific people in your groups and you can keep it separate versus a lot of social media is just essentially an, an open canvas and everything you're out there. Yeah, you can create Facebook groups, you can do some things on Twitter with, you know, adding to lists, but it's just not the same as what Google Plus added. So where it's it is falling apart, I think hopefully these I know that these groups are gonna be able to find another outlet, whether it's Slack or some other, you know, social media platform or uh, application that, that can keep them in touch. But, you know, Steve, once your community loves one project um, in one platform, it's really hard to get everybody to move past that. So kind of a sad day, I guess, for Google Plus users who really used it. But I think for the general consensus, most people didn't particularly care for it and didn't really use it.
1: As we've said a million times, uh, Google develops a lot of stuff and then they shut it down. So uh, if there's ever a new Google product, don't get too hooked on it because eventually it will go away.
0: Yeah. And one thing, Steve, just to reiterate your point, we'll definitely have a link in there, but if you use it, you have your album archive, you have some Google Plus pages, all that stuff's going to be deleted. Make sure you use the download and save function that we'll have in the show notes here to save your content. Make sure you do that before April. And, you know, note that photos and videos backed up in Google Photos will not be deleted. So that's what I use. And I think that's what a lot of people should be using as well. So make sure if you have a lot of content, download and save it, because you're not going to want to miss out on some of those things you've shared and posted over the years.
1: Dave, I guess this is kind of a, a tragedy from a couple different perspectives. And unfortunately, it's the, the death of a, a young individual, but it's also the tragedy of knowing how things are being operated and what the rules of governance are and things like that. And what we're talking about is a young 30-year-old who was involved in cryptocurrencies and there was a, I don't know if I want to call it a a group, an organization, a business, whatever, where they all did transactions with with, um, online currency. And unfortunately, the, the, the individual died who had control of all the cryptocurrency there are no passwords. They died with him. And if you know anything about uh, cryptocurrency, it's basically, it's impossible to recover anything without the appropriate keys. His wife has the laptop that he used for for these transactions and security experts have actually tried to get into it and uh, uh, no luck. So when you have lost $190 million because of uh, lack of transparency and and how information is accessed, I guess my words are beware and uh, know what you're getting into.
0: Yeah, this is a very scary and also very interesting caveat to cryptocurrency, Steve, because cryptocurrency, you know, in any form is not regulated per se by any government agency. This was a, a Canadian cryptocurrency exchange as far as I know, unless any of our listeners are um, are Canadian and are part of that or understand the system, I don't think there's any sort of regulatory oversight as far as how passwords are to be handled, who has access, all those things. It's pretty much you know arbitrary. It's it's however whatever company wants to use it uh, can use it. And after his wife reported um, him passing away in December, it's pretty much an affidavit, affidavit so that she filed for credit protection. And that she now holds sole responsibility for handling the funds and coins, and that's as you said about 190 million dollars in currency, and that's said to be quote in cold storage with the digital key held by Cotton, who you mentioned had passed away. And so, while his wife has the you know the laptop, she does not know its password, and even security experts have been able to get past the device's encryption. Steve, it's just, it's, it's definitely a sad story with the passing of a a 30-year-old young founder of a company, but it's also a a harsh realization that cryptocurrency is is very significant and very secure and very encrypted where you gotta have more information. You gotta know what you're getting into and you got to share some of those things in order to get your information back. And you know, a level of effort has been unsuccessful in trying to locate and secure any of the cryptocurrency that's in reserve. And so I understand that there's a lot of people very upset at this time. And it's a it's a sad state of affairs, but Steve, a very harsh reminder of what cryptocurrency's sort of unique place in today's digital marketplace is like.
1: I could think of a lot of other areas where, you know, one keeper of the property is a problem. And perhaps, um, quote, people that were investing thought otherwise or were told otherwise. But the real hard facts are, I'm not sure this can be resolved. And it's very unfortunate, not only from the passing of the, the young man, but you know, from those that have um, put in their earnings to cryptocurrency. And um, I'd hate to be the wife, not only for based on her loss, but really what she's going to have to deal with in uh, many potential things that could come down the pike from uh, some of these investors.
0: Yeah, Steve, you mentioned at the top of the show before we hit record is... You know, cryptocurrency is used for a reason. Like you said, you know, you can explain a little bit about with ransomware, but cryptocurrency works because of the passwords and the inability essentially to trace where this money is coming from. I thought that was a really interesting comment you shared.
1: Well, yeah, you're it's true and you're right on the money that uh, that's why Some of these internet thieves use cryptocurrency because it's basically untraceable and based on a lot of the encryptions, it's unhackable. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons a lot of people enjoy internet currencies is because of those factors. And it's actually become such a hardened method that even the criminals are using it. So uh, good luck. I, you know, I, the only thing I can think of is to use this story uh, is to be beware of what you're getting into kind of story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh it's a good reminder to a lot of us what it's like if you if you dive into that and what sort of protections you have to take as an individual consumer when it comes to these new cryptocurrencies and these sort of unregulated off-brand, you know, forms of of monetary compensation. So in in investments and yeah, just just a weird story, Steve. It's it's hard to believe that one person controlled 190 million dollars of someone else's money and you can't get Access to it by any means, you know. I mean, if I was to pass away, my wife could, you know, show show some information, get money from the bank. She can file a lot of things on my behalf. Cryptocurrency is not like that, you know. You need passwords, and it's it's definitely something I think a lot of people probably didn't know when they invested in it. But it's a stark reality in which we live in right now, and people need to people need to hear these stories so that they understand the nuances around them.
1: So, Dave, I think that's going to wrap up this edition of the Waves of Tech. Um, some pretty cool stuff that we talked about this week from A to Z, but that's the way our, our technology life is anymore, uh, whether it's a incredible prediction from Bill Gates or whether it's a, a crypto loss.
0: Yeah, every, from everything in between. And we'll have some some great links up in our show notes. Just head over to thewavesoftech.com. We will have everything over there in case you want to read any bit more on some of the details surrounding the FCC court appearance, what Mozilla was doing, a little bit more detail from a lot of those journalists and people reporting from the ground floor. Well, Steve, thanks as always for joining me on another episode of the Waves of Tech. Always such a blast. To everybody out there in podcast land, we appreciate all the downloads, the comments, the reviews, the ratings, all the social media outlets. We cannot thank you enough for being on this journey through 432 episodes side by side. So thanks for tuning in and don't forget to keep on teching.